Did you catch that? I mean, isn't that good? And so for those of you that are just joining us on, online again, thanks for coming back. And uh, we have been in a series over the last couple of weeks looking at the book of Revelation. And we're going to conclude that today. And I'm going to take a lot of liberty today. And I'm going to say some things that are based on... Um, things that we've said in previous sermons. And so if you don't like what I say or don't think I gave a scriptural support, I promise you I did at one point. Um, there's just not time to can totally recap everything that we've been talking about. We did make some resources available, uh, other books that we, we were selling for a while. Some of those are still available in our church library. So if you didn't purchase one, but you want to maybe check one out and read it, um, please get in touch with me for that. The Bible Project uh, reading plan is still available on Version, and uh, we encourage you to read that. We've also made the chart available that goes along with that reading plan. Uh, and if you don't have internet access and you want that, all that chart and that script is available for free uh, out on the table in the lobby. And so if you have any questions after service about any of that, uh, please see me. But starting on September the 4th is when we started this series, and we if you want to go back to our podcast, you can find the Work Unto the Lord sermon on Labor Day, uh, the Donkey, the Elephant, and the Lamb on Patriot Day, September 11th. And then a few weeks ago, we started The End, and it's parts one, two, and now today, part three of The End. And we talked a lot about this book of Revelation being apocalyptic literature. That word apocalyptic does not mean end of the world. It just means revealing. The revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, that's where we get the book. And it's not the revelation of the Antichrist, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the information that we've talked about and presented it boils down to the book of Revelation, in, at least in my opinion, really comes down to two things. One, the church being faithful to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Being faithful to the Lamb. The second is to, for the church to be faithful like the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Faithful to the Lamb and faithful like the Lamb. The book of Revelation um, is, uh, is written to the church in this first century. And apocalyptic literature was written at a time, usually when there was uh, persecution happening or a lot of difficulty happening. If you look at the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel was written while they were in Babylonian captivity. Um, some apocalyptic in there. The book of Zechariah was given to the church or given to the people of Israel during the time of Persian occupation when they were going back. How do you live under per Persian occupation? Um, the book of Daniel is about a man who lived in the Babylonian captivity time period, but the book was written after the captivity time period and was really written to the Jewish people that were now living under Roman occupation. How do you live faithfully under uh, a kingdom of this world? And so the book of Revelation follows that same pattern apocalyptically. How do you live as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ under these kingdom of the world empires that exist, that really are out for blood or out for greed or lust. And so how does the church live out our call in that time period? And the book of Revelation comes to the church, comes to us today still, as an encouragement that no matter what is happening around us, no matter how difficult things get or how strong evil seems to appear, the Lamb reigns over all. And the end of the story has been written. 
Heaven and earth will come together again, and he will reign victorious over all. That's the encouragement. And we can be faithful even through great tragedy and great cost. We can be encouraged that in the end, God is faithful and victory is assured. There's also a warning not to give our allegiance to the beast, to the kingdoms of this world. All throughout the Bible, I left my Bible backstage. I could hold up my phone because it has a Bible. Um, all throughout the Bible, there, I, I would boil it down to say this. The Bible is a book about a tale of two kingdoms. A tale of two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of empire, which is all about force or using the rod or the stick, using fear, using self-preservation. Like that's how the kingdoms of this world operate. But the kingdom of God that stands opposed to that is the kingdom of shalom or the kingdom of peace. It's not force or fear. It's peace. It's voice. It doesn't use the rod. God doesn't use the rod to lead us. He uses his voice to lead us. God doesn't use fear to lead us. He uses peace to lead us. There's no manipulation. And there's not self-preservation, but the kingdom of God calls for self-sacrifice, laying down our lives. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we see that God is all-powerful. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is able to do all things. But then he presents himself as the slain lamb, the lamb who is willing to give up his life in order to purchase the sons and daughters of man. That's how he purchased us, through his life. So when I say we're called to be faithful to the Lamb, that means it's the mission of the church. What are we called to do? It's the what we're called to do. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's about bringing the kingdom to people. It's about bringing people into the kingdom. It's about being connected as an individual believer with the body of Christ in this local congregation or even in the congregations around our city and around our world. We're coming together as the body of Christ from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people group, worshiping the Lamb together, living for the kingdom together. It's more than just me. And it's hard in our American concept to wrap our brains around this. We have so personalized our relationship with Jesus Christ that sometimes we disconnect it from the body of Christ. And we think that going to church on a Sunday morning and just sitting in a seat and then going home is what church is. But church calls for us to be connected with one another, to meet one another's needs, to serve one another, to lay down our lives for one another. There's so much more in the book of, of Acts, in the book of Revelation, that shows a connection in the body of Christ that we don't necessarily see in some of our church world today. We're called to be faithful to the Lamb, faithful to mission. We're also to be called to be faithful like the Lamb. This is the how we carry out the mission. We looked at the word last week, the word martus in the Greek. The word martus literally means the, to witness, to be a witness. So when the Holy Spirit was being poured out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my martus. You will be my witnesses. Okay? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, this letter is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful martus, 
the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, from this word martus, we get our word martyr. And there is an essence of this idea that when you are a witness for Christ, that you may potentially be martyred and you may lose your life as a witness. But the idea of giving your life as a martus does not have anything to do with dying as much as it has to do with living. It means to lay down our lives in our living, to live dead, if you will, not just for people that go and live in foreign countries around the world, but you and I, right here in the good old United States of America, are called to live as followers of Christ, willing to lay down our lives, not to be killed necessarily, that may happen, but to give up ourselves for others, to follow the Lamb. In the book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Michael Gorman says this, the slaughtered lamb reveals God and also reveals what it means to be faithful to God. It reveals how God saves humanity and how humanity, in turn, can serve God. All throughout the book of Revelation, except in chapter 1, Jesus is covered in his own blood. That is by design. The kingdom of God is about laying down our lives. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, right in the hinge point of this book, we find this verse. They triumphed over the beast, over the kingdoms of this world, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I think so much of the church world, especially in our culture, in our country, has been about just safely arriving at death. Can I tell you, the call to follow Jesus is not about safely arriving at death. It's the call to be willing to lay down your life even at the cost of death. And that's the call for the American church and every church around the world. That's the call. I don't believe the example of Jesus laying down his life for us on the cross was a one-time event that God used in order to buy back humanity. I think it's an example of kingdom living. He was the faithful Martus, the firstborn among us. We are called to live as he lived. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll, talking of, of Jesus, and to open its seals. Why is he worthy? Because you were slain. The willingness to lay your life down is what makes us worthy. When we come to Jesus, we don't come to Jesus just to receive what he did for us. We lay our lives down at the cross. No longer me who lives, you who live. And if you're not willing to, to count that cost and to make that trade, you can say a sinner's prayer. But the sinner's prayer is about laying your life down. Thanks, Marv. I know I'm, you're with me, man. <laughs> and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's not like God is this crazy uh, sadomasochist in heaven that just wants people to shed their blood. But it's that willingness to lay down your life and to bleed that actually brings people into the kingdom because it goes against the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of empire and the self-preservation and the me first. And when you shed your blood, it disarms principalities and spiritual forces. When you humble yourself in that manner, that's what breaks strongholds. 
Maybe some of the direction you need in your life for what you need to surrender to the Lord has to do with your pride and just being willing to humble yourself and stop fighting for yourself and let God fight for you and trust Him. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had, been, they had maintained. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. It's not a call to bear arms. It's a call to be willing to lay down your life. Why? Because you know that no one can take your life from you. Mark chapter 10. I mean, these are all through the book of Revelation. I didn't just cherry pick. Read the book of Revelation. The the call to lay down our life is all through it. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It's outside the book of Revelation too, by the way. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, some translations say while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Why does Jesus tell us in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? Because that's kingdom. That's how you win victory over darkness. You don't win victory over darkness by having a debate with your enemy and putting them in their place. You do it by laying down your life for your enemy and being willing to serve them and love them. And give yourself for them at your own personal cost. Maybe the reason we're not seeing widespread revival in our country is because most of the church is not willing to lay down our lives. We're sometimes not even willing to lay down our lives for other brothers and sisters in the body, let alone the people out there that wish us harm. And yet the, the book of Revelation is written to us to challenge us and to wake us up. And to realize it's not given to us so we can know the ten points of what's going to happen at the end so we can be fully prepared for who the Antichrist is. It's given to us as a call to lay down our lives and be faithful like the Lamb. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. That's not a popular message here in the good old United States of America. The idea of actually making myself a servant of someone else or laying down my rights for someone else. D.L. Moody, he said this in one of his sermons, I know of nothing that speaks louder for Christ and Christianity than to see a man or woman giving up what they call their rights for others and in honor preferring one another. This is the call throughout the New Testament. And somehow we have bought into this narrative, politically or economically, that we, we, we somehow have to fight harder or fight in the same way that the kingdoms of this world are fighting. And that's a false narrative. The way you overcome evil in this world is through good. By being willing to lay down our lives. Well, Pastor, are you, are you saying we're called to be doormats? Well, well no. We're not called to be doormats because we have far too much strength to be a doormat. 
A doormat means I let people walk on me, and it, it, it really has this idea of fear or insecurity or this idea that I'm trying to get approval or favor from people, so I let them walk on me. Can I tell you, in John chapter 10, Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, says this, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I have the authority to lay it down when I want, and I also have the authority to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. I'm not a doormat if I choose to lay my life down. And I do it from a place of strength, and I do it from a place of identity in Christ. And I know that these verses have been used in a manipulative way throughout church history by husbands who want to try to, to control their wives and make them submit to them in a way that the Bible does not support. And it's done by kingdoms of this world that try to get people to submit to them in a, a way that is, again, not biblical. Or in churches, it's been misused to have this level of authority that I don't, again, think the Bible gives. But what we've done is we've, because of those misuses, we've run away from it entirely and we've come up with this concept that God doesn't want us to be a doormat. He wants us to live victorious. And it's true, he does want us to live victorious, but victory is through the cross. There cannot be a resurrection without a cross. And you can't be raised in the power of Jesus and to follow him in his resurrection if we're not willing to lay down our lives first. You don't get to experience resurrection without dying to self. That's what the book of Revelation repeats over and over and over again. And my fear is that over the last several decades, especially as we have unpacked the book of Revelation in our churches, there has not been this call to the church to lay down their lives for, for the people on this earth and to be more passionate about souls and to be more passionate about the kingdom of God and the mission of God. There's been a, a call to stockpile. There's been a call to hoard. There's been a call to fight for rights and to bear arms. And I think we're missing the whole point there is a war that's going on but we do not fight with the weapons of this world prayer meetings are still the least attended things in the church and it's the most powerful thing we could do as a church jw tucker a missionary who gave his life overseas being killed by the people he was there to reach said this he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do not be afraid of dying. Do not be afraid of losing houses or cars or finances or retirement funds because I promise you, you serve a God who holds it all in his hand and he can be trusted to carry you, to hold you, and to see you. And so this letter is written to seven churches, specific churches in the, 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 country, the nation of Asia at the time. I don't believe these represent church history because I think we have to do some gymnastics to try to make that happen because I promise you the church around the world right now is not lukewarm. Maybe the church in America, some of them are lukewarm, but there are persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world. So there's three different groupings that I want to talk about in these seven churches, and I can't go into it deep. I'm going to give them to you, and you'll have to read the, the, the letters to these churches to, to ascertain them. But there are three groupings. One is a persecuted grouping. The second is a compromised grouping. And the third is a complacent or an apathetic grouping. So let's start with the problem of persecution. 
The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia are being persecuted in some way. They're experiencing some level of persecution that's stronger than what any of the other churches are experiencing. And Jesus' words to them are, be strong, victory is assured. Stay faithful to me, do not deny me, and you will inherit eternal life. There is no promise of relief or protection. Some of them are called to give their lives. It's clear. Some of them are going to be thrown into prison. But at the same time, this Jesus who speaks to them says, I am the one who opens doors that no one can close, and I close doors that no one can open. That doesn't make sense in our human mind because if he closes doors that no one can open and he opens doors that no one can close, why do some have to give their lives? Why do some have to be thrown into prison and others? Why is it, why is it that this one gets this and this one gets that? And that's the same question that Peter had for Jesus when they were walking in John chapter 21 and he talked about John and he talked about Peter and Peter's call to lay down his life and you're going to actually give your life for me. And Peter's like, well, what about John? And Jesus is like, you don't worry about John. You follow me. And so he, he speaks with compassion. He speaks with, with a, a, maybe a tenderness to these churches. He doesn't say anything bad about them. Of the seven churches, these are the only two that he doesn't even point out anything wrong with. Maybe it's because they couldn't bear it. I don't know if it was because they were perfect. Or maybe the way to perfection is persecution. Hmm. James says, consider it your pure joy when you face trials of many times because when you face those, you become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. So maybe our prayer in the American church should be, Lord, bring persecution so you can perfect your bride so we're ready when you come. Anybody want to pray that with me? Yeah, I didn't think so. In his book, Fan the Flame, Jim Cimbala tells a story about a pastor who was preaching the gospel in a village somewhere in Bangladesh. He says God blessed his efforts, and he married a Muslim woman, and she accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. Upon returning home to her nearby village, the woman informed, excuse me, this was not his wife, this was just a woman, uh, the woman informed her husband that she had made a decision to be a Christian. Her husband exploded in anger. He threatened her. He secured a loaded pistol, and he went hunting for the pastor who had preached to his wife. The man found the pastor, walked up to him as he was preaching, shot him multiple times in the face. Oh, I'd love this story to end a little better. Somehow, this devoted pastor wasn't killed, but he was left severely wounded and needed urgent medical care. When it was all over, and he had finally healed, this man of God, who was now facing me, Jim Simbola says, at the campground in Bangladesh, went right back to the village where he was shot, still proclaiming the love of God found in Jesus Christ. Talk about courage. What have you and I been called to sacrifice that comes close to that. Let that sink in. There's a problem of persecution around the world. And you and I should be on our knees regularly praying for the persecuted church. And we shouldn't live oblivious to it because stories like this are happening every single day. And we should be standing with them. We should also ask ourselves, are we prepared to live like that here and here on South Dakota? 
Is that how you and I would respond in that moment? The second problem that we see in these churches is the the problem of complacency or the problem of assimilation. I think there are three churches in this category. Pergamum, Thyatira, and Ephesus. The churches in Thyatira and the church in, in Pergamum are being condemned for the sexual immorality and the idolatry that's taking place. And while it's true that the the church, especially today, is compromising in some of the areas of sexuality, in some of the areas of idolatry, where we have put other things ahead of the Lord, where we are such an entertainment-based society that we put our own pleasure and our own entertainment ahead of serving God. It's just, it's the nature of the beast, if you will. But this is not specifically speaking in, in terms of culture. What's happening in these churches is in order to be a part of a, a guild or what we would call a labor union, you'd have to participate in idolatry or sexual immorality that accompanies it so that you can have economic prosperity, so that you can actually make money to support your family. And if you don't participate in these things, you're not able to, to support your family. So what do you do when you're faced with that, that crisis? And so the, the idea of compromise slowly but surely begins to creep into the church. And how do we live that out? And so when we read the condemnation to these churches, it's easy for us to read them and to think, well, you know, like the sexually immoral and the idolatrous people are the people outside the church. But in some ways, when the church falls prey to an over-allegiance to patriotism of any nation other than the kingdom of God, that's what's being talked about here. That's what's being discussed in the the nations of Thyatira and in Pergamum. It's an allegiance to the Roman Empire so you can live peaceably in a kingdom of this world. But do not compromise, Jesus says, or I will come and remove your lampstand. The third church in this category, I think, is the church of Ephesus. In the church of Ephesus, there's this fight for purity that's in these people. And there is a lot of good stuff Jesus has to say about this church. If you read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you will see that Jesus praises them for their hard work, for their patient endurance, because they don't tolerate evil people. They tested people who claim to be apostles, and they've proven them false. They've patiently suffered without quitting, and they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which were people that were practicing the sexual immorality and idolatry that is talked about also in Thyatira. So all of these good things, man, this church is like, wow. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul says farewell to the Ephesian leaders, this is what he tells them. Fight for purity. People are going to try to creep into the church. They're going to try to preach false doctrine. They're going to try to lead you away, but be true to it. And it's like they're following what Paul said. But here's the problem. Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, this is what it says. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, the danger of reading that as an American is we read that we've forsaken our first love. And so what obviously is being talked about in our American mindset is our passion, our zeal. Don't just go through the motions. Be passionate for the Lord. Be, be zeal, zealous for the Lord, which I'm not going to argue is a true biblical principle. But that's not what's being said here. Because if what's being said here is about passion, 
then he would have said, do things the way you did them at first. But there's something they did at first that they're no longer doing. There's action. And the word love, the word agape, is an action word in the kingdom of God. It's doing something. And the danger, when we try to be pure as a church, when we try to fight against doctrinal purity, and we fight against uh, purity creeping or impurity creeping into the church, and we don't want people to creep in, what the danger is, is we become critical. And we start seeing everybody as impure. This is the danger of the Pharisees. When the Pharisees started out, they were just trying to keep the nation pure. This was a good thing. But the more they leaned into it, purity became their idol. And so then they began to to look at everybody as a problem. Everybody but themselves, of course. And that's the danger. We no longer speak the truth in love. We now just speak the truth and we say that is love. And we stop laying down our lives for the very people that we've been called to reach because we're worried about purity. And purity becomes our God, not our God. The call for the Ephesians church is that their zeal is in the wrong place. They've stopped acting in love towards other people. They've stopped doing the things that would lay down their lives for others. They've given in to self-preservation. They've let purity come up to a higher level than it should. Purity is important, absolutely. But it should never keep us from loving the impure. The third problem is the problem of complacency. The churches in Sardis and the church in Laodicea. These are the wealthy churches. They're very affluent. There's not a lot of persecution. There's not a lot of difficulty. And there's not a lot of good said about them. Jesus does not say much good, if anything. In fact, the Laodicean church, he says nothing good. Their deeds are unfinished. They have a reputation for being alive, but they're really dead. They think they don't need anything. They think they're wealthy. They think they're blessed. They think they can see And they think they're righteous, but Jesus says you are actually miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He tells them that they're neither hot nor cold. And we, in our mindset, think that Jesus is saying he'd rather be us be an unbeliever. He's not. There are hot springs and cold springs in adjacent towns to Laodicea. And if you try to bring hot water a long distance or cold water a long distance, it ends up being lukewarm and it's useless. What he's saying is the cold spring is useful, the hot spring is useful, but you are useless. There's nothing good. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Those are some pretty harsh words. But he says this at the end. I stand at the door and knock. Now we've made that about unbelievers. Jesus is knocking at your heart's door, but he's knocking at the door of a church. People who think they're in right standing with God. And he says, you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Because you're relying on yourself, you're not relying upon me. So as we read the book of Revelation, what does that speak for us? Well, one, I think it speaks to our connection, our community to the body of Christ. 
I'm, I'm going to cover a couple things, and I don't want him to come across as legalistic and say that the only way you can be a believer is to be a member of a body of Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, if you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, if you want to follow the Lamb and you want to be faithful like the Lamb, you ought to commit to a local body of believers and stay there. And stop jumping ship every time you get upset about something or get your feelings hurt by someone. And it's time to dig in because we're in a war and it's time to stop hopping from church to church and just get plugged in with some other imperfect people and live out the call to, to be faithful to the Lamb together. It's time to just stop showing up on Sunday morning and find a way to actually be engaged in one another's lives beyond the Sunday morning worship service. It's time to stop walking out the doors and saying, well, man, I didn't get a whole lot out of that sermon today or the worship really, really didn't do it for me today. Well, it was, none of it was really about you anyway. It was about the Lamb. And it's time for the church in America to wake up and to realize our deeds are unfinished. We have a reputation for being alive, but it sure looks a whole lot like we're dead. I think it's a call to serve others. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, each one of us should use whatever gift we've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. It's time for churches to, st to stop having to beg for volunteers. Now I get it. We can do too much. And if we're doing too much, we ought to stop some of the things we're doing. But if a church has to beg for people to sit in a kid's ministry and teach them the Word of God so they grow up and they maybe become missionaries or they grow up and they go out and they tell others about Jesus so that they get founded on the principles of truth in God's Word, then there's something wrong and it's time for the alarm to sound. Well, Pastor, I'd really love to serve, but I, 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 how can I serve in, in, and just really get by with the minimum? Maybe it's time to read the book of Revelation and realize it's not a call for the minimum. It's called for the maximum. How much more can I give? How much more is this soul worth? That's what the book of Revelation is supposed to do. My sermon today should not make you feel guilty so you go out and like do something in response to it. But the book of Revelation ought to light a fire in us to say it's time to wake up because we're in a war and we're losing. And it's not because they have, they have stronger weapons. We just started to pick up their weapons and fight with them. And we've laid down our superior weapons. It's a call to give. In Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about the partnership in the gospel. The assemblies of God was founded on giving to missions. And every month we take a global outreach offering. And the question is, how much can I give? Not, well, you know, how much can I squeeze out? The question is, all around the world, there are people that are perishing, and there are people willing to go live there at the risk of their own personal safety. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't deny, when, when Jeremy Settle was here a few weeks ago, and I sat over there, and he was talking about Tokyo and the, the millions of people unreached in Tokyo itself. I thought to myself how much money I spend on ice cream and coffee. It's really just not okay. And the more I read the book of Revelation, the more I think maybe I spend too much and maybe more of it needs to go into things that are going to last forever. The Apostle Paul, oh, don't, don't talk about money. The Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth 
to grow in the grace of giving, excel in it. Excel in being generous. I shouldn't have to stand up here week after week and say, hey, Global Outreach Offering, come on, please, let's go, let's give. I promise you, when I started pastoring this church 25 years ago, the older generation wrote a check every single month. Every single month without fail. Every year when we took faith promises, they raised it. And every year they, they gave more than they could. And I watched people who lived on Social Security give amounts of money that I don't understand to this day how they gave it. But they had a passion to see souls come into the kingdom. And I, I promise you, we have not passed that on to the younger generation. And I don't know whose fault it is. I don't really care whose fault it is. But I'm, I'm calling the younger generation. It's time to get passionate about souls. And it comes through giving to global outreach so we can send people like this to another part of the world and they can have everything that they need to do what the, God has called them to do. And if, if you're not willing to put in the basket, then go yourself. I know, that's harsh. I'm not trying to be harsh today, but it's a wake-up call. It's got to be a little harsh. The last one is prayer. Oh, prayer. We need to pray more as individuals, but church, we have got to pray more corporately. Over the years, people say, oh, Pastor Tom, I can't make it to prayer tonight, but I'll be praying with you from wherever. I get it, I get it, I get it. You can't be there every time. There are times you physically can't come. I get it, I get it, I get it. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says in this verse, he's talking about the body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. In, verse, in chapter 14, verse 16, he says this. When he's talking about tongues, otherwise when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can anyone else who is in this position say amen to your thanksgiving so they don't know what you're saying. So in other words, what Paul is saying is if you pray in tongues and I'm standing beside you, I can't say amen because I don't know what you're saying. You've got to pray in English too. I get it. I love it. If you partner with us from home, praise God. But how can I say amen if I'm not in the room with you hearing what you're praying? There's a corporate aspect of prayer that has gone unfinished in the American church. Amen. And it's just time to change. It has to be a priority. The book of Revelation shows us that the bulls, the prayers of the saints, get poured out on the earth for God's kingdom to come. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, if we pray, God responds. Prayer has got to become more of a priority in our lives. And again, all of these things can be taken to an, a legalistic extreme, absolutely. But all of them, as a reaction to legalism, can be forgotten and unfinished. And maybe that's what Jesus wants to say to us today. So I hope you will take time to read the book of Revelation again, to take the chart, to study it, to keep studying it. We're done talking about it for now. I guarantee you we're going to come back to it. I've ha I have a whole new appreciation for the book of Revelation. And every time I read it, I pray, Holy Spirit, help me to catch the passion that's in this book. Because I'm not passionate enough. There are deeds in my life that are unfinished. There are things that I have stopped doing. There are ways that I need to pick up some slack. There, there's a wake-up call. And here's the thing. It's, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Don't walk out of here today trying to do 50 things. Say, Holy Spirit, where do I start? What's the one thing you're asking me to do today? Because in this room, there could be 
Pergamum, there could be Thyatira, there could be some sexual immorality, there could be some idolatry, there could be some nationalism that needs to be dealt with, there could be some Ephesus, there could be some criticalness that needs to be dealt with. There could be some unfinished business in the area of serving or giving or in going. And so I don't know where you are today, I don't know where we are as a body today, what God is speaking to us But my prayer is over this next week that he speaks plainly and clearly to each of us as individuals and to us as a corporate body as to what he wants us to do as we step out into these last days. And so, Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you today stand at the door of every church and you knock, waiting to be let in. God, I pray that today we would hear your voice. Whatever it is you're saying, God, for those in this room that are struggling in some area of sexual immorality, some area of idolatry, God, that maybe are struggling with with a, a Christian form of nationalism, that are struggling with how to become a patriotic Christian, God, for those that are in this room that are struggling with a critical spirit, speaking death over situations, God, looking down on the very ones that they're called to lay down their lives for. God, I don't know where they are. I don't even know where I am fully today. God, your word says that we don't even know our own hearts, but Holy Spirit, I trust you to speak. I trust you to speak right now in this moment. I trust you to speak throughout this week as we go back over the book of Revelation and these words to these churches. I trust that you're going to guide us and that you're going to lead us and you're going to be faithful to finish the work you started with us. You may come with a rod of correction and discipline, But we trust you. And we trust that you're doing it because you love us. And you see something better on the other side of that. Help us to welcome that discipline into our lives this week. Holy Spirit, I pray for each and every one today. God, that somehow, through the book of Revelation, they would find encouragement and they would be challenged by the words of the Apostle John to us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, before you leave, um, draw your attention to the table again. Offering baskets are there. The charts are there for the book of Revelation. I encourage you, if you haven't picked one up yet, uh, to pick one of those up. I'll be around too. If you've got questions about the book of Revelation or things that we covered today, I'd love the opportunity to visit with you a little bit more about it. Uh, If you need prayer, Our prayer team is always available to you. I'll be available to you. If you haven't had an opportunity to be prayed for today, or maybe now at the end of service, there's something on your heart you want prayer for, please come and find us. We'd love the opportunity to pray with you today. God bless you as you go.